0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 265, Korea Podcast. Our today's guest is Mr. Jonah Loeb. is an artist, game dev, and a world builder, and also has worked on IP such as Skyrim, Fallout. And he's right now currently working as an illustrator for from Marvel Anatomy and also some comic books. That he's also going to do some, you know, Kickstarter project in the future, which we're going to talk about in the podcast as well. And we're on this, and we're having this call from New York and well before we go into the signature questions of the podcast i need to quickly mention that in the for contact section of the captions you can find the id to his instagram the link to his websites, twitter profile youtube channel which i highly recommend everyone to do check it out and especially there's a link to a skyrim documentary that he also produced and it's on his youtube channel it's about 53 minutes i watch uh, i'm gonna be honest i Wanted to watch it, like, a bit sooner, but I just watched it a couple of hours before this podcast. And it was. if you're a fan of, like, you know, Skyrim or, like, just game industry in general, that's a really, you know, good thing to watch, I think. And so I highly recommend that. The links is in the description down below. And with all this introduction I'm out of the way, let's jump into the main signature question of the podcast where I ask everyone. Basically, um, give us a little introduction on how we got into the world of visual arts and design. Basically, tell us the story of, like, you know, how... how what journey did you go to that you ended up deciding to become an artist, you know? Um, I've always enjoyed art. Um, I really
1: enjoy the process of making art. I've always liked drawing a lot. And then when I was a teenager, I saw Jurassic Park. And uh, I'd never seen anything so realistic in a movie before. And I went to the bookstore and, and while I was at the bookstore, I saw a copy of Making Jurassic Park, which was this great book, and flipping through it, I was struck by it seemed like so how many people had worked on the on the the movie, not just people making puppeteers, but people making little clay sculptures, people um, doing graphic design work, people doing storyboarding, and that kind of thing. And I was so um, stunned to see that there's such a wide range of jobs in the field of creature design and, 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 and entertainment. So <clears throat> I think then that's when I kind of realized that I could potentially make creatures for a living. And so <clears throat> my, my goal was to make creatures for movies. And then when I got a little older in college, I realized that if I were to get a job in the movie industry, uh, that I would be much more of a larger pipeline, and I would have less authorship and ownership of individual aspects of a film. Um, And also, there was something about knowing that you know I could work for six months on a scene that takes place over the course of seven seconds. It just doesn't. It didn't sound particularly fulfilling to me. And I realized that if I worked for video games, I'd have a much much more ownership over the uh pieces of art I created for the for the the game and people would be able to really like truly interact with that thing in a meaningful way. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to go with video games over um movies. And so I applied to a whole bunch of game studios and I did not get in anywhere, um including Bethesda. And then I applied again and I didn't get in anywhere and then I graduated college and I um spent Seven or eight months just working on my portfolio because my my college was not a was not geared toward that industry. It was a more well rounded education, which I'm very grateful for. But it didn't necessarily get me a hundred percent ready for the industry. Um, but then I spent another about eight months of my own time researching and going online and following tutorials and developing a character art, a 3D character art. Uh, portfolio. And then I applied again to places and I got in at Bethesda, which was uh, fortunately very close to my home. And that's how I got my first job in the industry. And, and Bethesda was still a small studio, but they were they were on the up and up. And I was lucky to get in there when I did um, because then I got to work on uh, the Shivering Isles, which was the expansion pack to the Elder Scrolls 4 Oblivion and then I and then from there I went to Fallout 3 and then from there to Skyrim.
0: Wow, like that's like for your first projects so like you know initially in your career that those were some like good projects to have on your resume honestly. And oh, yeah. uh yeah. I was very lucky. I I did not know how lucky I was at the time. And what do you think you know I, I, I it this might be kind of like a general or vague question but out of working on all the IPs, of course, you know, which one did you have the most fun with during the whole pipeline and the process of like, you know, just being going all creative mode on your process? Um, what part of that was my, my favorite? Yep.
1: Um, I really enjoyed um, going a little off script a little bit. So, uh, you know, for me, I've never been particularly interested in simply transcribing a two-dimensional concept into a three-dimensional model, because for me, that doesn't leave any room for me, for Jonah Loeb, the artist. So I was grateful uh, during the years I worked at Bethesda that they gave me a lot of liberty to go outside of the of the concept zone and, and do my own thing. Um, I essentially just checked in with the, both the concept artist and the art director before I began a new a, uh, asset, whether that was a creature or something. And I asked them, you know, what is what is the element of these of this concept art that you like the most, and which you connect with the most, and that would give me a strong understanding of what I needed to preserve from the two D concept, and then be, and then anything they didn't mention for me was more uh, uh, open. Uh, open for 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 my own interpretation. So being able to find the comfort zone there between um, following um, a, a piece of concept art and creating my own piece of art was really nice. Um, and when it came to the actual work itself, I really enjoyed layering on um, detail, age, um, authenticity uh, because I think that aspects like wrinkles or folds or, uh, uh, dust or cracks or that kind of thing, those all tell stories. And so that was a, my ability, that was my way of creating a sense that the things that I was making was, were real. Um, and that helped me sell those ideas
0: to, to the audience. And, um, I was wondering, you know, between the worlds of like, you know, universe of like Elder Scrolls and Fallout, which one of those two universes do you personally like, you know, connect with the most, like, you know, if you could, if you had to pick one. Definitely fantasy. Um, I think the world of Fallout is
1: intriguing and uh, very memorable and iconic. Um, But it's ultimately pretty uh, depressing and a little too close to the real world, I think, in many ways. And for me, the lure of a good story is that there's something unexpected. just around the next corner. And I think that in a game like Fallout, where you're kind of, you're exploring hidden depths in looking at ruins and all that, and it's cool, but the best you can hope to find is, you know, another kind of assault rifle or a special, um, a piece of, of, you know, a special helmet or something. And there's something about that that just doesn't feel magical to me. It feels like, um, you know, like it, you're just collecting nice trash, whereas opposed to something like like a, a fantasy game where you're finding, uh, you know, an ancient relic used to to fight evil that is imbued with a magical spell, and you know, you're encountering spirits and ancient traps, and it's just much more it's a much more um, alluring uh, fantasy uh, uh, world of adventure, I think, than than Fallout.
0: Yeah, I can see what what you mean, definitely. uh yeah um but all right now let's go back to like another art question um of course in the introduction i mentioned you know you're kind of you know working on comic books you said you started as a 3d character artist but i'm just wondering and this is of course a topic we can talk about a little bit deep, we can deep dive into it a little bit further on in the podcast but what is your main branch of design that you would say you're the most efficient like proficient at and how did you, you know start your journey like, let's say, for example, the, your main thing as as a, like a profession, like in a, in a discipline of design is, let's say, character art. Like, how was your journey on that? If that's, like, you know, your main thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think up until the last few years, I would say my specialty was 3D uh, sculpting and, and, and character work. But I think that there are so many young up-and-coming Talented people in that realm, who are much more familiar with the softwares um, and hardware, and mostly softwares, um, and all the little ins and outs of those softwares. And I think that's the kind of thing that if you don't focus on, you kind of forget uh, some of those tricks. So when it comes to raw ability, um, I you know I'm still a, a strong artist in those realms, and I can still create a good creature, but I I move much slower, uh, and more arduously than I used to in that realm, uh, because I'm out of practice. Um, so these days I would say my specialty is probably illustration and concept art. Um, I just, I, I think when I left Bethesda, um, I kind of felt like I was, it, it wasn't that I did not have more to learn because you can always learn more in a particular realm, but I felt artistically confined to programs like ZBrush and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I felt not just... Um, Restrained by tech like that, but by the pro, but by the fact of working at a game studio and being part of a pipeline, meant that I did not, I my my level of ownership, and artistic influence was severely restricted to my role, um, and. The realms of concept art and illustration allow much more room for total control. I get to control the art style. I get to control the medium. I get to um, choose the subject matter. And I don't. And and I think also there's um, more poetry in two dimensional art, insofar as in 3D art, you have to design every inch of a character. So I, you know, I would spend a whole day working on the underside of a character's feet, you know, um, which is great and gratifying and spectacular practice. And hopefully re- resulted in some good results, but I think there are artistic sensibilities that govern the human eye. And I think that when you look at some of the masters, when it comes to painting uh, you know, a good painting can control where the viewer looks, you know, the viewer thinks they're in control, looking at this piece of image, but with things like composition and line work and contrast, um, an artist can manipulate a lot of things behind the scenes. It's a broader range of power, I think, which is which is very interesting. I think also with illustration, you're able to create more than one character at a time and place them in settings and choose the perspective and that kind of thing. So you can also there's a, there's a degree of storytelling and of uh, emotional connection um, and dramatic effect that are present in illustration that are not present in the isolated realm of creature design. Um, so I think that as an artist and as an interested and creative human, ultimately, I have found I am immensely grateful for uh, my 3D design years, and I don't want to walk away from those, but... These days what really sings to me is is illustration and concept art.
0: All right, interesting. And I actually that's a topic that I want to, you know, as I mentioned, I wanna talk a bit a little bit deeper down down the line of the podcast, like about how switching, you know, positions and roles. Um, that's because that's kind of a big topic on itself and I want to give it a good time. Uh, but for now let's Go into another question, another subject. Sure. Uh, which is how does your design process usually go anytime you want to start working on a new piece or a project? Like basically what does the structure of your pipeline look like? I'm, um I guess a lot of people who might listen to this podcast know you for your 3D character art. And maybe you could give an answer for both, actually, if if that's possible. One for illustration and concept art and one for, you know, your 3D like pipeline and process.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, if when I'm working in the 3D realm, uh I'll start a piece uh very roughly and uh I won't I will I, it's a, my rule that I never go into the specifics of an image uh right away. And so a lot of people jump into ZBrush and they uh punch the subdivision levels up all the way so that they're working with like quite a uh a you know kind of a, a ball of clay really and that's very has a potential for high detail and that kind of thing. I never do that. Um, I always start with a very low resolution mesh and I really focus on building out the form and uh, establishing the look, the feel, the stance early um, and really focusing on that. And then once I've found that basic... um, physical structure, uh, I'll start to lean into the kind of the poetry of the pose, um, the larger shapes, the larger lines, you know, trying to think of what exactly, you know, how my eye flows across the piece. And, and I, so for a while I just massage and push and pull. And as I work, uh, over the course of days, I'll add more subdivision levels or I'll add sub tools, that kind of thing. Um, although I don't like using sub tools until I have to, because, Uh, The moment you break off a a sculpture into multiple pieces, uh, it becomes more increasingly difficult uh, to have to juggle these multiple pieces when what you really need to do is be able to see the the model as a single whole. Um, Because when a player sees your giant troll running at it, them they are not going to be thinking about the things that are the, the trolls wearing wearing on their body or you know the the spiked gauntlets or the human heads you know that kind of thing what they're going to see first and foremost is the whole silhouette and the whole thing Um, and then only later will they start to look at the details. And so I try to focus as much as possible on the large shapes early. Um, once those shapes are in place, I'll start breaking, breaking in and, 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 and really establishing key points of the anatomy. And then from there I will refine and then begin to add the last thing that the last thing I add will be the surface detail. Um, because that's the, the, the last level of detail that you notice. And in most, in, most, in most video games, you don't see characters very up close. Um, you just don't, uh, because they're running at you when you just shoot them down or whatever you, you see most things from kind of a middle distance. And so it's the middle distance where everything has to look best at the middle distance. So one aspect, sorry, there's a cop car. No worries. Cause there's a ambulance or something. There they go. Um, Yeah. Tell me you're from New York without telling me you're from New York. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So then, um, so I think if one thing, if if you look at my models, uh, you'll notice that a lot of them have very clear, you know, if you cast a light on them, they have very clear shadows. um, And there's a very clear level of detail that right around the midpoint where everything stands. And and if I was showing that visually, I could, I could show you with my hands, uh, you know what I mean, but, uh, maybe that's a little confusing then. and then then, when it comes to two d illustration, I will start with thumbnails, uh, sketches, really, really, really loose sketches uh, of the same image from a couple of different viewpoints or a couple of different I'll give it a, a, the same character, a couple of different tries uh, of drawing to get it right. And then once I've done several of those, I find, my, you know, and I don't spend much time on that. I probably should spend more time, but I don't. Um, but once I find a pose in a, in a, in a scene that I like, I'll draw it a bit more, a bit more detailed and then keep on adding um, detail to that. Um, and then from there, move on to the line work and the painting. Um, yeah. There is a bit of a difference between illustration and concept art. Concept art can be much looser and messier. Illustration um, has to be a bit more polished. And so I'm still, Navigating the correct pipeline for these things, and I suspect I'll never quite get it right.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. And um, there's a couple of questions now I want to ask. You know, now I'm just alternating between you know miscellaneous random questions and like you know art-related question because I want to keep the podcast like not so monotone. Sure. Uh, so my question is: um, On your first playthrough of Skyrim, did you which faction did you choose? A Stormcloaks or like the Legion? Was that the Legion? Oh, the Imperials, sorry, ah, I messed up. I think I picked the Stormcloaks,
1: yeah, yeah, even though they're pretty racist. <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> but Imperials, you know, also the Imperials, you know, we, uh, I'm not, not into them, you know. They look too They look too much like the Romans to me. You know, one, one of the things I discovered Bethesda when I played Morrowind, and it was so weird and cool and different, and I found it so appealing. And then when I joined Bethesda and they were making Oblivion, the game looked from a graphics perspective, very beautiful, but it looked much more, um, traditional and classic fantasy. And that actually turned me off, um, to them, uh, to, to, to that game. I just felt like what Bethesda had to offer was so much more original than what Oblivion offered up. Um, but you know, well, that's what I like about The Elder Scrolls is that every game takes place on a different continent. So that was a continent that just happened to look much more traditionally Lord of the Rings, um, whereas Skyrim looks traditionally like a Viking's tale. So I am always going to choose the side that looks less classic fantasy and more different because that's appeals to me.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think the first time I played Skyrim was around... I guess, 2012, 13, around those times. Yeah, I was, I guess, around 14, 15 years old at the time. And, yes, I'm going to be honest. My first choice was a storm close because, like, of course, my rebellious teen, teen nature, I wanted to be anti-establishment. But then when I grew up, I was like, oh, God, if I have to... Because here's the thing. Uh, I'm a, I'm a real sucker for a good RPG game, you know, because my favorite oh, yeah. game of all time is Fallout New Vegas, actually. I played that, I guess, more than 100 times, to be honest, at this point. <laughs> and, um the thing is you know i even replayed that back and i and i tried to actually strategically like, like think you know what is the best outcome for this area and for skyrim i realized hmm i uh, i don't know i guess grills um, could be better in the long run because they, they would you know would be much better defense from the outside forces of like you know the high elves and all that stuff but yeah stormcloaks are basically you know just yeah it's like make skyrim great again something like that you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. I generally avoided both sides, though. I think I just my my what I love doing is just
0: wandering in oh, those games. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Jeremy Saul did an amazing job on the on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. And um, what was your first build like? What was your first character build? Mine was a destruction mage. I was wondering, you know, was your was your first favorite? Oh uh, yeah. uh a Kajit
1: archer and swordsman. Uh, he was, he was very cool. He was very, very cool. I can't remember his name, but, um, I have a fantasy book that I've been writing for 20 some years and one of the main characters is like a cat man. And so I just had to, I just had to try to play him in the, in the, in the game. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, the question I just asked is kind of interesting because when anyone, regardless of, you know, what's kind of, you know person, like one kind of character you try to role play as, whether it be like a great source warrior or, I don't know, a sneaky archer or whatever, everything will lead down to like a stealth archer route, regardless. Like that's a whole meme on itself in the community as well. It's so fun. It's so fun. Exactly. It's so satisfying. (laughs) And now, another thing I want to ask you is, have you ever used your dreams as inspirations for your works in any, uh, like, you know, capacity? That's
1: interesting. Um, yes, I can't think of many concrete examples, but I'm definitely a big believer in, in paying attention to your dreams and listening to your dreams. Um, because I think that there's a lot of, uh, really rich material, you know, that your, that your subconscious comes up with. Um, there's a couple landmark dreams I remember that caused me to wake up and try to write something down, um, or think about it. um, but I can't say that I, I – I, yeah, I can't think of any concrete examples, but I remember one time I I, I dreamt that I had a little like shadow man in my pocket that he would ride around with me. And he was like – he was an elder god and he was kind of made out of shadow or, what, or whatever. And when I woke up, I we had this piece of plastic lying around that was kind of like um, uh, kind of a charcoal colored – clear piece of you know a plastic so a little bit like sunglasses kind of uh but that kind of just it was just a sheet of plastic sorry can you hear that heater going on yeah a bit but it doesn't matter don't worry okay mic. i great um and i cut out the shape of the character from my dream like in that and i still have i still i still had that somewhere um so it was definitely like a thing that stuck in my mind um so yeah i think i think there's a lot of power in dreams um, in terms of symbolism and the way they make you feel and I think folk, paying attention to them I think is always worth it because there's something there's something it's 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 weird enough and I think the brain does what we are used to doing professionally as creators which is you know creativity is just connecting things that don't necessarily go together and thinking up and, and thus creating new things and I think that's what your brain does when you're asleep is it just slaps a whole bunch of ideas and thoughts and feelings and imagery together into, into these little stories. And um, because it's your unconscious doing it, unconscious doing it, uh, it's often loaded with meaning. You know, there's a reason that your brain picks this and that and pushes them together. Uh, because often in some way in your heart, you know, you feel that these things actually are connected
0: yeah and um speaking of like you know that that sort of stuff like um there was this you know artist i interviewed like a while back like by while back i think I mean, I mean around like i think i think the last spring and this is something really interesting about dreams that um dreams are usually like you know Things, of course, you know, we all know that that dreams are kind of like, you know, the visual representation that's whatever is floating in our both subconscious and conscious mind. But when it comes to, like, you know, art, it's also important to have this kind of ritual for ourselves, you know, especially not just art, in any creative endeavor in general, not just any endeavor, to have some sort of conscious reminder in our daily lives. Like, all right, I'm sounding a little vague. Let me clear it up for a second. (laughs) Uh, Like, for example sometimes you might feel like you're in an art creative block or something you know an art route or something maybe you you of course you pick up a sketchbook and you try to sketch and you know sketch and go along you know get formed up and you know you you, ideas will pop up eventually but here's the thing maybe you could turn it into like a ritual and maybe on the on your wrist here like do a little mark a little tick and you keep doing that as a consciously so here's the thing when you keep doing that repeatedly for a long time it's kind of you kind of see that action in your dreams and when that happens, you can, it's going to be a reminder that, oh, we're dreaming now. So uh, you can start losing dreaming and construct whatever you want. You know, it's kind of like VR, but in your dreams. It's like the most powerful, like, you know, engine to, you know, make your artworks or inspirations to come alive. I only managed to do that once. And because I didn't practice enough, like it quickly snapped. Like I remember, I, I actually did that when I was, I think, 16, 17 once, but I've been too lazy to practice on that, and it's kind of <laughs> freaky as well because if depends on you know everyone's um, brain chemistry stuff. You might see, we might have a bad trip basically. But one time I remember I was actually having this dream. Then I then I did the reminder thing. I was like, okay, we're dreaming. So I quickly uh, imagined I'm on a, I'm on like a sci-fi surface of a Mars area, kind of like that, extraterrestrial, like you know, broken down, you know, destroyed cities. But then again, imagine I was in Gotham, like in the sky and then i i think i woke up after that because i got too excited i guess <laughs> because that's that's the tricky thing about it because once especially you re- you get to the point where you can actually do do this sort of stuff um if you get too excited of course you're gonna wake up if you get too nervous anything doesn't matter You, uh, it's a bit tricky but yeah for yeah for anyone who's actually listening to the podcast or watching the podcast on youtube i highly recommend to you know try this thing it, it doesn't have to be like writing something on wrist; it could be anything you know maybe it's just you know playing with i don't know a keychain you have like just make it a ritual that you consciously uh, engage in like it every single day and multiple times a day and you while you're doing that just think of all right i'm doing this right now i'm doing this right now i'm doing this right now then boom suddenly like maybe a couple of days weeks later you do that in your dream because it goes into your subconscious you know what I mean that I know it's in my it's getting kind of you know freaky but it's actually there's some truth to it you know a lot
1: of people say that if you if you focus on your hands before bed if you look at your hands and focus on your hands it has a similar effect where then in the dream you get your hands and then be like oh oh right Mm -hmm. right 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 I'm dreaming yeah but every time I do that I, I wake up. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you're just, because you get excited that, oh my God, I can now do everything I want and boom, you wake up, you get excited.
1: Yes. And I think also when you realize you're, you're dreaming, you might start to think about the things that you would think about when you're awake and then that changes your brain. Oh, brain yeah. Rate, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, and all right, the next thing I want to ask you is who are some of your favorite artists and designers that have inspired you the most? Um, You know, I get asked this a lot and I have
1: a very hard time answering because um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have had a much easier time of it because I wasn't on Twitter then. Um, And I think something that's happened in the last 10 years, I I joined Twitter nine years ago. um, And, uh, you know, Twitter is a bit of a dumpster fire of a place, but when it comes to connecting with the, the art community, the digital art community, um, it's pretty spectacular. And so I have a really hard time a- answering with specific people because they, I am exposed now on the daily to so much talent and ability um, that I, I find it so hard to pick it anymore because because it just becomes a, a, almost like a sea of inspiration and a sea of great ideas. Um, and I admire so many different artists in so many different ways, because I think that the field of art leaves so much room for human expression and people's strengths are so different. So, you know, I'll follow this person because they make incredible line work and this person because their pencil drawings are amazing. And this individual uses paint in a way I'd never seen before. And this person is a zebra sculptor and this person is a traditional sculptor. So I, I do have a hard time, I gotta say, uh, with that question, I, I still can't come up with a good answer because um, it would take a long time for me to list out. You know, it, it would basically involve me opening up my phone and then just reading
0: everybody that I follow. So, yeah, I know what you mean. That's that's actually one of the like the tricky questions when I ask everyone because I kind of know that it's not really answer. Even if you ask me the same question, I'm, I would kind of be like, you know, stuck in the head, like in the air. like I don't know what to say, you know, because there's too many, you know, of course, but the. The reason I still ask that, because sure, there are a lot of people that inspire you, but on top of your head, some people, some names eventually pop up, you know, and those are actually like some interesting answers, you know, Uh, you know what I mean?
1: yeah I mean, if I were to just name some off the top of my head, I mean when I think about my childhood, I think about someone like John Howe doing Lord of the Rings illustrations um but i I you know I even think about um, Jonan Vasquez who made uh invader Zim and I, I knew him from the comic book Johnny the homicidal maniac and you know the, and it was very unlike anything I'd ever read before um Masamune Shiro who did ghost in the shell um the the graphic novel uh the second one is Terrible and completely unintelligible, but the first one is is a true masterpiece, and um, and then when I think about more contemporary artists these days, you know when it when it comes to um, color palettes and line work and weirdness, you know I'll go to somebody like Robbie Trevino uh, when it comes to traditional sculpture. There's a a, a, a woman named Beth Kavanagh who does these animal sculptures that are just unbelievable the way that the way that she uses clay to create these an- and paint to create these animals is just um, so uh, affecting um, uh, Jessica Fong is that correct just Je- Jessica the Jessica? um is a, a spectacular illustrator let me just make sure I'm getting that last name right uh, Jessica uh, no hang on. Jessica, why can I not find this? Uh, maybe they changed their name uh, here, but um, yeah, I, 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 I am definitely surrounded by, surrounded by some incredible artists, um, and I have a hard time naming them all because even just looking through my through my my my, my Instagram feed now, I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, these people are amazing. Louis Larosa, spectacular pencil artist. Um, Alex J Brady, spectacular concept artist. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, it's too hard. It's too hard, Rum Tim. Can't do it. Yeah. yeah, and speaking of like you know different disciplines and also a topic we kind of briefly you know touched upon you know in the in the beginning of the podcast was the whole I kind of subject of like process of learning other format, other mediums of art, you know, and just switching between them because. Um, here's the thing i have a, like this is also another big topic on its own and it's something that i recently i've been you know talking about it with guests a lot on the podcast then that topic that i'm trying to mention is that the fact that how kind of unintentionally that most art mediums and subjects are becoming kind of repetitive and cliche and it's mostly because that's and the main reason i think behind that is the fact that um, most people gear their arts Towards the needs of the industry That's not necessarily a bad thing That's what he should do to get a job, of course But my point is that, you know You don't really see those people Like that much people Who actually do art for the love of it I mean, like, y- yes, they are But the general consensus is That, you know Like art is kind of becoming a little Cliché in, in some senses Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean I know what you mean Yeah, I think yeah,
1: I think the I think the, the there's the idea of art as a profession and then art as a human discipline. Um, and I think there's a difference between those two things. And I think a lot of people um, who go into art these days go into arts because the field of games and movies and shows uh, is such a big industry. And they realize that for the first time they can make a real living making art, but they do these things with the mindset of creating these products, not because they love the act of making art itself. They want to be part of games but they don't actually prioritize the art itself um, necessarily. I think also a lot of young people are looking more and more at games and at movies for inspiration. And these are second or third hand sources. And it's kind of like, you know, when somebody is is making a game or a movie or whatever, it is a, Hopefully, it's beautiful and original and, and and different. But a lot of times, you know, it's a Xerox of reality. It's it's a it's a pale imitation of reality, or it's a or it's a stylized in some particular way, and it means that the people who then follow them in the industry are looking at what came before to determine what they'll do next, as opposed to thinking about what they as humans would like to make and and do. Um, I think the kind of thing you're you're describing is a little bit about, you know, my gripe with, for instance, uh, uh, a lot of anime or manga, which is that um, a lot of people who like, who want to make anime and manga look at anime and manga, and then their style emulates the common practices of anime and manga, instead of looking at the real world and drawing how they see the real world, you know, um, which I think, um, and they, now again, my general generality about anime is, is just that a generality. Um, but I think it's, there's a similar thing happening where we've spent so long looking at a particular medium that we have a hard time thinking outside the box, uh, and creating something new. And so I think that is why in my YouTube series, in my educational courses, that kind of thing, I always, always, always um, tell people to look at the real world. No matter what you're doing, Um, you know, if you want to go into creature design, don't look at other creature designers. Look at animals. You know, like like it's not that you won't learn something from other creature designers. You can learn a great deal, but. Ultimately, you will just be copying what they do and probably not as good. But if you copy from reality, if you look at an actual cockroach up close and and model that but with changes, you're going to have all these rich details that are truer and more realistic um, to reality and thus come across as closer to reality uh, for the the audience. yeah, so I think I think what it would, a lot of what you're saying is is that a lot of art these days is looking kind of samey, and there's not a lot of um, like l- there's not as much kind of going off in different directions and trying new things. And yeah, so that's why in my, that's why in my art courses and my YouTube and all that stuff, I try to get people to look at the real world and to recognize that art is a discipline that is a worthwhile thing in and of itself, and that you should spend time just thinking about and working on and always be (coughs) hammering at your less powerful abilities. Um, So if for instance, I were to analyze my own journey, uh, started off doing digital 3D work. And then I started going into the realms of digital painting So working with color. And then now I'm actually even taking a step back to something more rudimentary, which is a black and white comic book. And so by removing color from the equation, it's allowing me to focus all my efforts on composition, line work, and value. Um, And, (coughs) pardon me, composition, line work, and value are fundamentals of art that translate to any other medium uh, within art. Um, and so I know that I might spend a year making a comic book in black and white, whatever, but by the end of that year, I will be a more powerful artist as a whole. Um, so yeah, trying to constantly challenging, challenge yourself and try new things I think is really important. And I think perhaps what you're describing is, is people not trying enough or not recognizing that this is a journey worth
0: undertaking. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I kind of don't blame it. I, I don't blame anyone, especially when I kind of fall into this trap myself. But because we live in a capitalistic world, of course, money is important. You have to, you try, everyone basically hears what I'm kind of noticing. And I kind of caught myself red handed with that as well. The fact that um, you, you pick a discipline that you like, I assume, hopefully people do that. And you try to become super good at it. Then you do the bare minimum to get a job. You enter, of course, as a junior, you develop, but your development, here's the thing your development is limited. Uh, it, it's kind of stagnant because you're like, all right, I got the job. I get the money I want. That's it. I don't need to become a better artist. That's what I've seen in the most, most like, you know, a lot of things. This kind of trend in most artists, a lot of artists actually. And it's kind of sad because imagine if like art would, artists would get the same amount of re- recognition and, it, you know, just, um, the stability to actually do what they love because you would have a lot of artists who would approach art like how like you know researchers for like you know approach like you know sciences you know and i think that's that's really important you know and um and speaking of that, also I want to quickly mention that you also worked on as an illustrator for like a Marvel Illustrated uh, Marvel Anatomy book as well, which I think was a really cool, you know, idea. Link the Amazon link to the if anyone wants to buy the book, you know, it's in the description as well. You can check that out. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Actually, how did you uh, stumble upon? You know, this opportunity came up to you. Actually, um, yeah, I um, I've
1: been on present on social media for. About ten years now, um, and that has made me more visible um, to potential employers and Having worked on Skyrim and Fallout, uh, that earned a lot of goodwill as you said those were those were really good marks on my resume um, and so I think that the editor at a publishing house had been following me for a few years because of my work on those games, which he he quite enjoyed, and then he had this idea for a Marvel anatomy book um, that he pitched to Marvel and it took a couple of years, but they eventually agreed. He had a comic book writer come up with the manuscript and then he was basically shopping around for the perfect illustrator. Um, he, I think he interviewed a few people, but nobody seemed to be quite right for the job. And because I think it's a very unusual job. Um but when he approached me about it, I was very excited because I've put a lot of effort into learning anatomy um, as a creature and character designer. It's kind of I- I imperative that you learn anatomy, and um, you know, as a creature designer, my job was to take animals and people and combine them, you know, in some way. And so, I was quite familiar with the human body um, and musculature and bones and that kind of thing. And I recognized that this opportunity to create this book. Um, what represented a very unique opportunity for me Jonah Loeb to create things that would be become Marvel Canon uh, which is a very rare opportunity because Marvel they're a cast of superheroes you know they have yeah I've never actually been immensely artistically interested in heroes because the outfits are already picked. The villains are already picked. The storylines are written by others. There wasn't just, a, you know, in the same way as that I wasn't interested in, in just transcribing 2D concept art into 3D models, I was not interested in simply being one more artist drawing Batman or Superman or whoever um, because uh, there was no room that I saw for creative, my own creative freedom. But this seemed to be seemed to offer intense creative freedom, um, so yeah, over the course of about a year, almost a year and a half, I worked on this book it 's a two hundred thirty page book it 's got over sixty heroes and villains, and I just ground through it, and I was very pleasantly surprised at how much creative freedom I got um, and how many things I was able to kind of invent that then became part of this book um, so it was it was really fun and it was a good. It was a good um, I felt like if if I can do this book, then i can then I can do then i 'm officially good in anatomy <laughs> if I can, if I can make a fake anatomy book then i 'm okay, then I think I can check off anatomy, learn anatomy from my things, list of things to do, and not that, not that there 's not so many more things for me to learn, but that maybe then I can move on to other things um, because I think about ten years ago i I decided that I really wanted to be able to draw any human from any angle from my imagination. And I'm still nowhere as good as I want to be, but I I can do it now. And so I think I can now focus on other things, like cartooning, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. And um, this question, I usually reserve this, the next question that I have for people who've been kind of like, you know, have a lot of experience in the industry. And, uh, basically the question is any advice and any major tips and advice you got for anyone who wants to, as a junior, get into the industry, like, you know, for a resume portfolio or just anything else in between in general that you want, that you might want to mention.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the best person to ask about this because I've been in the industry for so long now. Um, and because I worked on Skyrim and fallout, uh, I think a lot of people just give me the benefit of the doubt, you know, anyway. Um, but I do know one really good piece of advice, which is if you, if you are a beginner, it definitely pays to specialize in one particular role um, because you can always learn more disciplines later in your life. But I think that, and, you know, and I think it's important to cultivate interests in lots of different subjects early on as well. But I think a lot, especially if you're interested in getting into, quote, the industry, I think you want to be seen by potential employers as a plug and play employee. They hire you on day one. On day two, you're already working. Um, Whereas if you are starting work as a generalist, um, it's a little harder to get uh, a job because, because of your age, mixed with the fact that you are not specializing yet, it means that you're probably not very good at anything um, because that only comes with the time. So, you know, uh, to get that first job, I think it, it pays to gear your talents toward that specific skill. In my mind, I imagine it, I imagine getting a first job a lot like hunting a buffalo and you creep up on the the pack, and you throw your spear, and you hope that when it hits something, it stays in that thing instead of just kind of bouncing out. And to do that, you have to make the tip of your spear as as sharp and powerful as possible. Um, And so if if your talents are not immediately visible, uh, your resume is not going to stick. so, in, in from from my you know my own experience, I knew that when I applied to companies by showing them some of my 3D work, some of my 2D drawings, some of my digital paintings, some of my animations, I wasn't getting any any bites. But once I spent eight months and made just a demo reel that showed off just my character design abilities, uh, character my 3D character design abilities, that's when I got my first job. Um, so in the years since then, I've learned a much wider range of things. But to get that first job, I had to prove that I could do the job that they were going hire, to hire me for. And they were going to hire me for a 3D character artist. Um, so it can be maybe a little nerve wracking to to pick one thing when you're interested in so many different things. But I think just recognizing that life is long. Hopefully, and uh, you can you you will do more things later on. I think it's good
0: to try to get really good at one thing early. The buffalo analogy was actually such a good analogy. Now that I think of it, yeah, that that's so true. It's, it's like, like it's like the, the spear is your resume and your portfolio,
1: you know, and that, and and the tip of that spear is basically the the impact. When somebody sees that sees your work, are they impacted? or are they not, you know, if, and if you're a generalist, you know, you're working with like a dull edge to your spear, you know, you can, you can, it can have lots of really cool things on your spear and it can be painted and have feathers on it and all that. But if it didn't make an impact, the first hit, you're not going to get the job. Um, yeah, I, I recognized the very beginning that I did not have the technical ability that a lot of my competitors did, but I knew that I was really good at characters and personalities and that characters and personalities are what are, what is truly what leaves an emotional impact on your audience. And so when I got an art test for Bethesda and they sent me a picture of a raider from fallout three, um, I saw all of the gear that the raider was wearing and all these little details. And I thought to myself, there's no way that I can do all of that detail, but if I am really good at conveying a believable and human expression in the face and get everything else pretty good, then that will leave an emotional impact on them and they, 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 they'll hire me. And I think, I think that's probably how I got the job is I focused on, the, on what I was good at, which was making a believable looking person with a very realistic and engaging kind
0: of personality. And uh, I actually had a question, you know, whenever you do artists, especially, you know, for something like characters, do you also have to give different iterations for like, you know, level of details or just one high high detail version to showcase your skills is enough? I'm just kind of curious about that. Um sorry, in, in, in what context? Yeah. Like, you know, um, usually, like, you know, inv- environments and, you know, game, like assets and, and stuff like that, of course, it, you, you probably know it as well, that you have to, like, you know, kind of make the high-poly version to low-poly version to meet, like, you know, in different kind of l- level of details. So I was wondering, because it, the characters must be a l- little bit, you know, different because they're so high-poly usually. So how does that usually work when you want to present your work for, I don't know, like, l- let's just say an artist? Or maybe just even on, on the game, not just an artist, you know, in general. But when you say present my work, what do you mean? To to um, to a general audience or to an employer? Uh, to a an employer. Like in the studio, you're working on a character. And I assume you work it on a high poly, like, you know, maybe in ZBrush, you sculpt the character. And of course, for the optimization purposes, that's what I'm trying to ask. I see. Um
1: for optimization, um, you know, so I, I'm, I, you know, I'm pretty old. I'm, I just turned forty, um, and so I've been in the industry for a while. So when I started, poly count mattered a great deal. You had to keep your poly counts low, and so I am very good at delivering very low poly finished, ready game ready models. Uh, that you know, of course, my ZBrush model, my high poly, my high poly model can be endlessly detailed but the low poly model, I'm very good at keeping it low. So um, when I worked at Bethesda, uh, over the course of creating one asset, be it a monster or otherwise, I would check in with my art director quite a bit during the beginning, the first maybe couple days of a project. So they can get a sense of the foundational structure the general look that i'm going for and then i can tend to go off on my own more because everything else is just uh, details on top of that um so just to make sure that i was kind of doing what they wanted me to do i would check in a lot early and then um, i would do my own thing and then yes i would do the high poly and then the low poly based on that um so it's never a question of simply just, you know, making the model and then showing them the final, you know, you always, as a client, you know, you always check in with your client and, and make sure that things are heading in the direction that they want. And that, that minimizes trouble for both of you, you know, um, it saves time ultimately, and it makes sure that they're always on the same page. And yeah, and to create a, a final low poly game, game ready model, um, you can be, you'd be surprised by how much information a normal map can remember. Um, and I think animators also appreciate it when your model is not too high poly because it makes skinning and rigging easier. At least it did when I was a youth. These days, they probably have all kinds of automated software.
0: Oh, speaking of automation, oh, that's just another controversial hot topic AI and all that stuff. Oh, boy. Um, and <laughs> um, all right. So, actually like j- just on a quick tangent I wish like things like Retopo and you know all the stuff would be done by AI instead of all the fun things that the AI is trying to take over but hope I guess you know I saw some news that the issue is kind of getting resolved by now um but With AI you know, AI art yeah like they're, they're getting sued pretty hard I guess the big, big creators of like me journey all, all that stuff
1: yeah they definitely deserve it Um, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, no, I really, I really hate, I hate, hate, hate AI art. Um, yeah, it's scary because, uh, it's not really getting, it's not really getting, it's, 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 there's now a counterattack, but I wouldn't, I would not say by any stretch of the imagination that it's getting resolved because what we're seeing, the AI that we're seeing now is level one. And, if, and there's, if there's anything we know about technology is that it grows at an exponential rate. And so I think AI should be it, really, we should all be on the lookout for AI because it is not our friend. Um, it is not our friend. I think that people, some people are excited about it and some people have better reasons to be excited about it than others. But, um, and I, I recognize that I sound like, you know, an old person when I, describe my fear about it. But the fact remains that when AI can do so much now, uh, it is rendering humans, human ingenuity, human creativity, and human labor less and less important. And so yes, AI can provide a lot of shortcuts. And hopefully those shortcuts are healthy and useful and helpful tools for us. And that's, that's the best version of AI that I can potentially hope for. But I worry about people who are younger and getting into the industry now because it is getting, it's getting to be a scary place when you can compete against an entity that can remember thousands of, of images all at once in perfect detail and recombine them to create original concept art or what have you. That is very scary times. Um, and so I am, I'm hopeful that the lawsuits go well um, but otherwise, my my best possible response to AI in general uh, is that we find the programmers responsible and we cut off all their fingers. <laughs> I'm like, kidding, of course. I'm it, kidding, yeah. of course. But but you know, but I but I hate it. I hate it down to its core um, because I think and you know the the animator the the movie uh, movie maker Miyazaki said basically that it's it's an insult to, to life itself. And I totally agree because there is, you know, I am not a religious individual, but I believe that there is something close to holiness about art, whether it's writing, martial arts, music, Drawing, painting, sculpture, because it allows the human mind to enter a space of work that is unlike any other, a certain kind of a a Zen place. And it's a time, yeah, exactly. It's into these fluid states. I think there is something very powerful about human achievement to be said when it comes to the practice of art and the discipline of creating art, um, I think there is something very special about it. And I think that our art is a reflection of our souls. You could never draw what I draw and I can never draw what you draw because not only are our abilities completely different, but our life experience is completely different. And I know that I feed my life experience into my art in all kinds of different ways. And so the idea that we would outsource human creativity is horrifying to me. Oops, I lost connection. The idea that we would outsource human creativity is deeply disturbing to me. Um, Because it means also that instead of reaching into our own souls and selves and lives to create inspiration, we will do more and more of what you described of everything kind of becoming the same and looking the same and we became and we become ever more intellectually weak and and reliant on a machine brain whose sole ability is to take all these human-made images and splice them together according to prompts and To me, it's 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 tremendously damaging because I think it removes individual human experience from the act of making art. So I think it's both I think AI is both insidious because it is. Yes, it is coming for our jobs. It already is. It's already here. It's already taking jobs, not from me or maybe you or a lot of your listeners. But there's a lot of young, hungry artists out there who really need the extra money that they get from all these little odd jobs and AI is already prepared to take those little odd jobs at an ever increasing number. Um, and I think, you know, it, should AI be used to make cars? Yes. Should AI be used to make microwaves computers? Yes. Should AI be used to expand our abilities in space? And travel and all these things, absolutely. Should AI be used for art? Absolutely not, because that is the one thing that makes humans special and that allows us to dream.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's so many things to touch up uh, to touch up on on this uh, whole thing. But to me, it's very basic. Like, why do people are even interested in just you know? removing the most fun part of the creative process like you know the whole process of experimentation you know doing things and discovering new things by yourself and you want to skip that and another thing that it was extremely disgusting when I saw it on YouTube like There's uh, this is also another subject the whole Hustle culture and grind that is this past decade that's been so mainstream especially these days There was there's actual there were actual videos on YouTube with 300 400k views or something how to make money with AI art and on the thumbnail is some guy doing this and love like 5k in one month with AI art and that that to me it was like ugh, like so disgusting honestly like yeah, money yeah. ruins everything. Honestly, like I know I sound like some leftist socialist, but it's true. Like capitalism ruins everything to its core. Honestly,
1: I I agree because it puts any. I mean, listen, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a socialist either. But any you know any system that uh, has no intrinsic value for art, for instance, or any system for whom a forest or a jungle is entirely worthless until it is raised and developed into buildings, at which point it becomes money, that's capitalism. You know, it's, that's literally the idea that, uh, untouched, beautiful nature is totally
0: worthless. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. I, hopefully we won't, we're actually on the route to dystopia in some senses, but hopefully some changes will happen. We don't know, maybe in 10 years, who knows what's going to happen. Nobody Uh, knows nobody knows it will will be
1: the future will be more horrible and more beautiful than we can imagine but it is it won't go one way or another it will go both
0: ways it will be it will get worse and it will get better yep and all right speaking of future what are you working on right now for your future projects i mean what kind of project is it i mean of course if there's an India involved which 99% Ninety-nine percent of the time, there usually is. Um, what kind? Uh, what kind of thing are you working on that you can share a little details about?
1: Um, I'm doing a, a little bit more uh, superhero anatomy work for a different publication uh, uh, at the moment. Just uh, nothing, nothing of the scale of Marvel Anatomy, but just some commissions. Um, I worked on some cool. I worked with a guy in, in Greece uh, to create some custom-made dice for D anD. D and Dragons. So I have these, like, really cool. He made he he cast them in metal. Oh, nice! Uh, your, your pod, your your audience cannot see this, unfortunately. On the YouTube dark.
0: version, they have to switch the YouTube version on March one hour and one minute and fifty seconds. You can go on YouTube and check it's, the dice yeah. results.
1: It's it's and then and then for anybody who's interested, they can check out check me out on on um Instagram, and I'll have pictures of that as well. So those are odd jobs, and then larger scale, I'm thinking about um. Uh, This year, kickstarting my own comic book because um, as wonderful and as privileged as it it has been working on games like Skyrim and Fallout and Marvel Anatomy, um, these titles belong to corporations. They do not belong to me. And uh, I am at a point in my career where I've decided that I have enough ability and I have enough uh, name recognition that I... That the next logical step for me is to uh, generate my own intellectual property and, and put my own name out there on a product. So I'll be kickstarting a comic book. Um, it's called. Uh, it'll be called Quiet um, or Quiet Level One. It's it's it'll be black and white. It'll it's about a little um, skeleton character who is uh, in a fantasy world, a dark fantasy world, and um, he's facing up against a large barbarian human and it's kind of that's it's kind of like a, a one versus one kind of setup but it's a it's it's a whimsical world it's a dark world it's a whimsical world it's cute um the main character is very cute um and it'll be uh, very exciting to see if i can to, to, to see, to understand the process of creating my own uh, comic book, which I've never done before, and of marketing my own comic book, which I've never done before, and selling my own comic book, which I've never done before. And I think it'll also feel very gratifying to have made something that belongs entirely to me. Um, so that's, that's next. That's, that's what's up, up next. And then, but I will also be continuing to work on YouTube on putting on you know, all the different projects I'm working on, putting them on YouTube with the intense, uh, intent of educating, you know, people on exactly what your podcast is about art and creativity.
0: That's awesome. And I also, of course I mentioned in the beginning of this, uh, episode for anyone who's listening, you can check the link to the, 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 book to the Marvel Anatomy book, the Skyrim documentary link, the link to the YouTube channel, and also the link to Mr. Loeb's website as well, so you can check all this stuff out in detail. Of course, Instagram and Twitter is there. So do check it out if you're interested or you've been intrigued by now, which I highly, by the way, just out of everything, listen, I'm just going to say a little like this. Out of all the links I mentioned, check out the Skyrim documentary links. Trust me. That's, like, such a good documentary. I really enjoyed it. And especially for someone who also, like... I, like, I, w- I was going to say for a second, wasted a lot of my hours on life on but I wouldn't call it wasted because I actually right. enjoyed it, honestly. Like, you know, uh, like, what would I do if I didn't, like, play Skype? Like, I don't know. Go out and socialize? Who needs that? Who needs that? Yeah. And, all right, we've reached the final question and section of the podcast, which is called appropriately time capsule. All right. So, I think you can, al- we can already kind of guess, you know, what the time capsule segment's <laughs> might be but i'm just going to explain it like this imagine right now like you know we record this part of the podcast is going to be like a recording and that's going to be put in a time capsule right and anyone at any point of time in the future can listen to it if you have in this opportunity that you have right now what would you have to say to anyone who might listen to this you know uh audio in the future it could be anything it doesn't have to be an rt pair advice it just s- should be something out of jonah Lope, you know What do you have to say to anyone who might be listening? It's like Hmm. your opportunity to say anything that a lot of people will hear in the future.
1: Hmm. Let me think about that one for a second. I would say that... I would say do all you can to cultivate an interest in this world that we live in now to cultivate an interest in other people and understanding other people and to always, as much as you can say yes to new, to new experiences. Um, because the experiences that we go through enrich us, they help us to grow. Um, and the more we tell ourselves that I am not this kind of person or I'm not that kind of person. Oh, no, no, no. I don't sing. Oh, no, no. I don't dance. No, no. You know, I'm not really, I used to do drawing, but I don't really do drawing anymore. Oh, you know, I'm not really a musician, whatever. Um, the more you, you, you form a narrative around yourself that you are not these things, uh, the closer you are to death, the more you, nurture your interest in the world, in animals, in nature, in people, in any subject, the, the younger you become in your mind and the more,
0: and the richer you become in your soul. All right. That's, that's awesome. That's an awesome answer. And yeah, that's so true. The whole thing about like, you know, how you identify yourself, like, that is actually such a, that sounds like it's such a simple and um, basic, like, you know, thing, but most people don't realize how important it is, like, how you under- identify yourself. If you identify yourself, oh, as someone who, oh, I'm, I'm just this, I went, uh, w- went along with the script that everyone told me, I can't do that, it's too risky and all that stuff, you probably won't. But if you say, if you're actually passionate about the project or something you want to learn, sure, you might not get to the highest level at first. Like, I'm just saying it as a mathematical probability, but there's a high possibility that you might get there. So you never know unless you try, you know, actually put your heart into it. And yeah, the whole, how you identify yourself, just that's a short form I could say for the answer. Yeah, but that was such a good answer. Thank you so much. I think, I think, I think think there,
1: people have, sorry, stuttering stuttering, across the board, when people ask old people who are dying, what, what is on their mind or, or, or what upsets them the most far and away. The most frequent answer is regret that they didn't try this or do this or do that. And I think fear keeps us from a lot of, of from from trying new things and telling ourselves that we are not good at a thing uh, stops us from doing a lot of things. And the older we get, the more entrenched we become in that mindset And I think, as you say, you know, you, you do anything and you get better at it. You know, you always, you, you, and, and there's so many things to do in this world that you're going to be crap at most of them, but try them because you're going to learn a lot and it's going to open your eyes
0: uh, to the world. All right. I think that's a wrap and well th- again thank you so much for coming by for this podcast it was a real uh, pleasure and thank you to uh, anyone who tuned in and listened to this episode or you might have watched it on youtube so hey there youtube people and uh, by the way where can people contact you if they had any questions uh yeah you can uh email email me through my website you can message me on
1: instagram you can um, make leave a comment on youtube or find me on twitter i'm at any one
0: of these locations and i i i try to get back to everybody as always links are in the description down below so anyone can check those check those links out and that's it everyone take care till next episode stay safe take care Bye-bye. bye bye bye